Let's pray. Father in heaven, you say in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, I am watching over my word to perform it. So I want to link into that promise right now with this prayer. And I pray that you would do the miraculous work of performing your word this, this morning, Lord. You are watching over it. You are jealous for the speeding of your word into every nation and tribe and tongue. And Lord, for those of us that have such access, that have so many translations, that have so much exposure, Father, help us not to squander the privilege that is ours, but rather may we have a sense that to whom much has been given, much will be required. Teach us now about the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. This past weekend, several of our number participated in a Mount Free You seminar entitled, Rightly Handling the Word of Truth, Learning, Loving, and Living God's Written Word. It was a sweet couple of days together as we considered topics like walking with God, uh, having personal devotions, uh, family worship, how to listen to a sermon, a little bit about the, the history of the English Bible. We had a great time. And this sermon is a way of kind of capping that weekend, this whole focus on the Bible and the gift of God's Word, while at the same time, it's a wonderful opportunity to preach for a second time a message I first gave to our church a little over six years ago. Our church has changed some since then. It seems like yesterday to me, December 30th, 2007. I remember who was even there in church that Sunday. The topic is the doctrine of Scripture for this morning. And remember, that word doctrine simply means what the Bible teaches. So when we say the doctrine of Scripture, we're getting at what the Bible claims about itself. One particular theologian calls this Scripture's self-attestation. The self-attestation of Scripture. That is, what the Bible declares about the Bible. What Scripture says about Scripture. What God's Word says about God's Word. How high is your view of the Bible? What do you actually believe about the Christian Scriptures? How elevated and lofty and skyscraping is your confidence in this book? In Psalm 138, verse 2, David confesses to the Lord, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. 
My dear brother Dervis reminded me of that scripture yesterday morning. Psalm 138, verse 2. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. Do you know the key to becoming a master of the content of Scripture? Here's the key. The key is becoming mastered by certain biblical convictions about Scripture. This morning, we're going to examine six convictions that every Christian ought to have about the Bible. Six convictions every Christian ought to have about the Bible. Those six convictions relate to the Bible's authority, inerrancy, clarity, necessity, sufficiency, and efficacy. Each one of those words is already included in your outline. I won't ask you to write those in. All we're going to do is unpack six words today using God's word. And we're going to be all over the Bible, so if you fear that you might get carpal tunnel working through here, you can just listen and and, uh, take notes where you like, but don't feel the need to keep up, but do listen. The first conviction, that if you get this conviction right, all of the other convictions fall into place, is this one. The first confidence that you ought to have about the Bible is its authority. It's authority. In other words, this book is God speaking. This book is God speaking. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Think of that. In the words of the Old and New Testaments, we have writings that God has exhaled. In these 66 books, we have a treasure that comprised together one God-breathed book. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul asserts the inspiration of Scripture. He just declares it. Simply proclaims what's true about these sacred writings. All scripture is breathed out by God. What he doesn't do is explain the process at all. For the process of inspiration, we'd have to head over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we read that scripture was produced by men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I once was talking to somebody years ago about the inspiration of Scripture, and I knew they didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and kind of leaned back in his chair. He said, yeah, I guess the Bible is inspired. And he meant, like, Shakespeare is inspired. Shakespeare wasn't inspired. This is what inspiration is. 2 Peter 1.21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is, a, this is a peak. It's the only peak that I'm aware of in the Bible. It is just this tantalizing glimpse, a provocative angle 
on the actual process of God breathing out a book. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As men spoke, God spoke. The verb carried along in the original is the same word that Luke uses repeatedly in the book of Acts to describe a ship being driven along the Mediterranean Sea by the high winds. Acts 27.15, Acts 27.17, it's the exact same word. So one commentator I read uh, summarized it this way. The prophets raised their sails and the Holy Spirit filled them and carried them along in the direction that he wished. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're thinking carefully, perhaps you've realized that in context, both Paul and Peter, when they're talking about the Bible that way, their Bible was the Old Testament. The first 39 books of our scriptures, the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Did writers like Paul or Peter or John or James understand themselves to be writing God's word as they were doing it? Short answer, yes. Yes, they did. A few selections from the Apostle Paul will be representative. Listen to this. First, Timothy, or First Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's amazing. Or, even more to the point, as if you could possibly be more to the point, 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says, the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. In 2 Peter 3.16, the apostle Peter himself refers to Paul's writings as scripture. He was a contemporary of Paul. He called Paul's writings scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. Even during their own lifetime, these men understood what was going on with them as they were writing the 27 books of the New Testament. Men and women, boys and girls of Mound Evangelical Free Church, God is talkative. He's chatty. He loves to communicate. In the scriptures, he speaks. We have God's word written down. I hope that you are growing in your understanding and your appreciation of, of the treasure that sits on your lap right now. Carl Henry, whose name unbelievably has already been buried with him, although he's only been dead for 10 years, Billy Graham called him the greatest theologian in America in the 20th century. Carl Henry said, called the Bible this. He said, the Bible is God's personal privacy turned into a public reality. This is God's personal privacy, and he's gone public. Thank you, Carl Henry. In 1661, John Owen said this, once the mind of God had been reduced to writing, each person 
to whom the scriptures may come has God speaking to them no less directly than if they were hearing God speak with his own voice to them exactly as Adam did when he was in the garden. Owen concludes that in the Bible, God's authority is so clear, needing no other testimony, the human mind is bound to give it immediate religious submission in all things. That's a stunning statement. Do you grant to the Bible immediate religious submission in all things? You should. You should, because this book is God speaking. Second point today, inerrancy. Inerrancy. This book is totally trustworthy. This book is totally trustworthy. What does inerrancy mean? It means that God always speaks truthfully in the Bible. Always. The Bible is inerrant, without error. The the scriptures never affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Whether that has to do with theology, or psychology, or history, or science, or geography, or any other domain of human knowledge or endeavor, the Bible is totally trustworthy. It only stands to reason. I mean, the the Bible is God speaking after all. And God is totally trustworthy. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that God never lies. Ever. He doesn't tell untruths or falsehoods or fibs. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You say, my goodness, this church has a lofty view of the Bible. Yes, indeed we do. And we do because Jesus had a lofty view of the Bible. Our aim is to be and make disciples of Jesus, and no one that I'm aware of on the planet had a bigger vision of God's word than Jesus, and he was God's word. In John 10.35, Jesus says that Scripture cannot be broken. God's word is shatterproof, Jesus says. It is an unbreakable Bible. Or Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will fall away from the law until all is accomplished. This book is God speaking, and that means quite simply that this book is totally trustworthy. Do you trust it today? Third, clarity. Clarity. This book is able to be understood. This book is able to be understood. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, Moses says to the people of Israel, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Our children. 
If fathers and mothers in ancient Israel were commanded to treasure up God's word in their hearts and teach it diligently to their children, what does that imply about the intelligibility of the Bible, of the book of Deuteronomy of all books? Even kids can get this stuff. This book is able to be understood. This is one pointer, although there are many, to the clarity of the Bible, the lucidity of the Bible, to the perspicuity of the Bible. I like the word perspicuity because it's not particularly perspicuous. (laughs) The word means clear. Isn't that ironic? You can understand this book. In Psalm 19, verse 7, David writes, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Simple people can become wise. Repeatedly throughout his life and ministry, Jesus affirmed. He didn't just affirm. He assumed the clarity of the Bible. It is uh, salutary to note that time and time again, when religious leaders came to him with biblical conundrums, uh, things that they thought were scriptural puzzles, he never once replied to them, you know, I can totally see how you guys didn't figure that out. God's word isn't very clear on that topic. Or, pardon me, the Bible is terribly vague in this instance. I empathize with your concerns. It never happens that way. It never happens that way. On the contrary, Jesus says things like, have you not read? Matthew 12, 3. Have you not read in the law? Matthew 12, 5. Have you never read in the scriptures? Matthew 21, 42. Or in Matthew 22, 29, Jesus says it straight out to them. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're wrong. This book is able to be understood. Now, does that mean that there aren't any difficult passages? Of course not. Of course not. That goes with the territory. Uh, 2 Peter 3.16 says that there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. It's hard. Hard like flint. Hard. So what's the hope? Normal people like us, what's the hope? The hope, in a nutshell, is the exquisite, extraordinary process of reading the Bible in your own language and thinking and pondering and savoring and meditating and asking the author what he means. In 2 Timothy 2.7, Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what God says. He'll give you understanding. This book is able to be understood. Fourth, uh, the necessity of Scripture. Necessity of Scripture. Which is to say, You need this book. You need this book. You need it for what? You need this book in order to meet Jesus. 
2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter reminds us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no other name under heaven, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. And you know what? We must be saved. We need saving. God, our speaking God, invites us to acknowledge and enjoy and prize and praise his glory for all eternity. But the truth about us is that left to ourselves, we refuse to honor him as God. And we enjoy and prize and praise the creation rather than the creator. It's called idolatry. When God's gifts become God's. And 21st century America is awash in it. We are drenched. We are waterlogged. We are saturated with the worship of the creation rather than the creator. And such idolatry deserves punishment. God really cares about this. He does not like being minimized. And he would be perfectly within his creator rights to smash us into oblivion because of our idolatry. But in his great mercy, in his stunning display of kindness and goodness and love, God sent his only son. He sent his son Jesus to live and suffer and die and be raised in our place. And when we we turn from our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus, what I'm talking about is that this trust transforms us. It transforms us in such a way that you can be united today to Jesus by grace through faith in him. And all that he has accomplished on your behalf can be yours. His life, his death, his victorious resurrection, it can be yours. Trust, faith joins you to Jesus. Right now, eternal life can be yours. And all you need to do is reach out his hand hand and take his hand this morning. If you have never come to Jesus Christ, come to Christ today. Come today. If that truth is precious to you, don't forget where you learned it. The Bible. Only the Bible contains that message. Only this book can lead you to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian today, you should be encouraged also by the doctrine of Scripture's necessity. You need this book in order to meet Jesus, but it's also true that you need this book in order to remain in Jesus. Christ himself says in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 32.47 says that this book is no empty word for you, but your very life. You need this book. Fifth, sufficiency. Sufficiency, which is to say, this book is enough. This book is enough. Enough for what? Well, it's not enough for learning differential calculus or how to build a website or how to tie a tie. My dad had to teach me that. So enough for what? Sufficient for what? Peter puts it this way. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through a knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This book is sufficient for knowing the mind and the will of God in every area of our lives that pertains to living a life fully pleasing to him. Everything God wants you to know about himself is here. What's that worth? Everything. It's everything. This Bible is enough. Finally, Uh, efficacy efficacy this book is powerful this book is powerful God gets things done with his word that's what he says in Isaiah 55 11 my word shall not return to me empty it shall accomplish that which I purpose it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it like right now. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 reminds us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful. His word grants faith. Romans 10, 17. It supplies the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, uh, 3, 5. Galatians 3, 5. God's word gives us hope. Romans 15.4, it sets us free, John 8.32. The Bible, friends, is mighty and potent and strong and effective. This book is powerful. So application time. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, do these six descriptions these six convictions describe you 
Do you have these convictions as a follower of Jesus that Jesus had about the Word of God? And if you do not, why not? You have to know that I'm, I pray this regularly for our church, that we would have these convictions. I've been praying this for years. If you do profess faith in Christ and these convictions are, are yours, then the question on the table for you this morning is, do you live like it? Does this book enjoy the pride of place in your life it so richly deserves? God has exalted above all things his name and his word. Have you? Would those who know you best say that you exalt above all things God's name and God's word? How deep, how unshakable are your convictions about the authority the inerrancy, the clarity, the necessity, the sufficiency, and the efficacy of the Bible. Another way to ask it is, are you learning his word? Steady progress in his word every day. No days off. Are you loving his word? Are you living his word? Wherever you happen to be on this continuum, I want to encourage you today, for, for your own joy for the glory of God and for the help of people around you. Take a step. Take a concrete step in your relationship with the Bible at this season of your life and in the life of our church. I don't know what that will look like. It would be very different for all of us, wouldn't it? Perhaps that would look like a commitment to read all the way through the Scriptures for the first time. If you were here this weekend, anybody know how many minutes a day it takes to read through the Bible in a year? Twelve and a half. Twelve and a half minutes a day you can get through the Bible in a year. If you started today and you took 15 to 20, you could finish the Bible by New Year's Eve. That's encouraging. Uh, where is your life out of alignment if you feel like you can't afford 12 and a half minutes a day for the God-breathed book? Are you willing to take a sober look at your day and see where the time might appear? This book is God speaking. This book is totally trustworthy. This book is able to be understood. You need this book. This book's enough, and this book is powerful. I'd like to leave us with some encouraging and, to my mind, stirring words about the completeness of Holy Scripture from one of my favorite lyrical theologians, Lamp Mode recording artist, Jason. About this book, Jason writes, Every time you put your face in the text, it's God-breathed. How does it feel inhaling his breath? It's alive. When we're talking the word, we're talking sufficiency from wisdom, literature, psalms, prophets, gospel to history. There's no book in the world to compare with the word. Divinely inspired, he divinely preserved it, complete 
When the canon was closed, let me help you through it. Don't be confused. There's simply no more adding to it. It's true. It's profitable for rebuke and correction. Equips us for every good work while purging out imperfections. Oh, yes, it's a blessing and display of his grace. He uses his word as a portrait so we could see his face. But wait, his words will pierce through your souls, sharp with divine precision, getting rid of your old heart. Our minds are filled with it, but skeptics can't deal with it. Still, it's amazing that God can be revealed in it. Amen? This is authoritative. This is inerrant. This is clear, necessary, and sufficient, and powerful. This is the word of God. May we of Mount Evangelical Free Church learn and love and live God's written word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have written all things for our instruction because the aim of your instruction is love. 1 Timothy 1.5. And so I pray that the net effect of this instruction would be that we are a powerfully loving church. Help us to be people who soar upwards in love to you in worship. May we be a church sacrificially, radically committed to loving one another in genuine Christian fellowship. And may we be a church that is ready to lay down our lives so that all those within our sphere of influence that don't have a saving faith in Jesus might come to know him. That's how we know if we believe this book. We will love you better. We will love each other better. And we'll love the lost better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.